Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. All right, all right. All right, we are we are 57 episodes into Genesis. <laughs> and my engineer's like, you you're never gonna actually get one of these seasons done in one year, are you? And I was like, I don't know. I think we will. I think we will. Maybe for Exodus. That that'll be next year. Next season will be Exodus. And uh yeah. Mm, no, no, we probably won't do that in 52 episodes either. I really thought we'd get David done in 52 episodes. I actually, if you remember, I thought we'd get David done in 20 episodes. So, okay, originally I did think it was 12, but anyways, it doesn't matter. It's just us talking. Well, technically it's just me talking and, and uh, you guys listening, and I appreciate you guys listening, and let's get on with the episode of The Epic Narrative. All right. This uh, this is in uh, Genesis chapter forty two. I'll just read a few verses and then, as usual, we will tear it up. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, "Why do you just keep looking at each other?" He continued, "I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us, so that we may live and not die." And ten of Joseph's brothers went down. Interesting that they're Joseph's brothers, not Jacob's sons. But anyways, 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain. Uh, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, uh, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid of harm that might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. So famine is spreading around the the world, basically, around the known world. It's... it's, uh, it's, I don't think it's a worldwide drought, uh, but it clearly, the, the impact on the markets, we'll just call it supply chain issues, are starting to be felt because Egypt was a world power and Egypt is, is definitely in a famine and it's impacting Canaan and, it's, and the lack of rain is probably in that area because they, they, they are in the same um, meteorological uh, patterns, so they would be feeling it as well, but but that be that as it may, it says when Jacob learned that there was grain. But so what he learned, that word actually means um, it means perceived. He perceived that there was grain in Egypt. Interesting word to be used because uh, there are there are many who look at this and believe that he got a word of knowledge from God regarding the grain in Egypt. So there, it, you know, obviously. They don't have the internet. They don't have social media. They don't have um, the mass media. They just have word words from people. But there's a good chance that people in Canaan, because they didn't have stuff to go sell, they weren't on the road marketing. So it wasn't like they were going back and forth to Egypt with, with food. So they were just trying to survive the famine to get to a place where they could hit the markets again. But Joe, it's it, the word here could mean that Jacob got a word of knowledge from God that he, whether it was in a dream or just had a strong sense that God was speaking to him. Remember, that was not an unusual occurrence. Both he and his father and his father's father had general conversations with God on a regular basis. So he he got information that there was grain in Egypt. Meanwhile, in Egypt, of course, we have Joseph, who has already uh, prepared 
the nation through seven years of plenty, right? He's built cities he, uh, around the grain um, uh, shelters. What do I want to say? Supply silos. He's built cities around them, uh, which basically, you know, you and I, we think of cities. I don't, I don't know how big these things were, but they were probably more like uh, fortresses near uh, the abundance of grain so that, so that they could just keep supplying more and more grain, building more and more silos. And then around the silos, they built a city, but mostly the city was designed to be protection uh, from the silos being raided and destroyed. Uh, the grain being stolen. So he had been doing that for seven years, and everybody loved Joseph. And of course, during a time of plenty, every decision he makes is just, they just think it's its awesome. And there's a lot of political pressure on Joseph because during, during that time, of course, he's a foreigner. He looks more and more Egyptian. He clearly has the, the intellect to interact uh, on high levels, and he has the backing of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's God as far as, or a God as far as most people in Egypt are concerned, so there's nothing they can really do to fight this. So Joseph is doing all of this, and he's doing it really well for, you know, for seven years, and now the first year of famine is probably about done, and people are looking around, they don't have, they don't have food, right? They haven't had a season of of reaping, uh, season of planting and reaping, so they don't have food. So they're starting to feel the pressure that there's no grain in the in their pots and in their buckets in order for them to make what they need to make. But but Joseph, I you know I I think we have to address this. Why did Joseph never reach out to Jacob? Right? He's he's. Let's just. I, I just want to walk through this. So he gets sold into slavery. I get that. He gets sold into slavery. He ends up at Potiphar's house, probably, you know, for the first, whatever, month, two months, he's there. He's just a lowly uh, stable hand, mucking stalls, doing that sort of thing. And then God has favor on him. Uh, the blessings of God's goodness is in Joseph. So every, everywhere he goes, people are in better attitudes. People work more. More work gets done. Supervisors recognize this. They move him into other areas. He accelerates uh, up the up the chain of command, up the ladder of favor in the world of servanthood, and soon he becomes you know he's out in the agricultural stages, and then from there he's moving you know they move him into the house, and he keeps getting more and more authority and more and more, and eventually Potiphar actually pays attention to him, and he's like wow like everything this guy touches is really it just turns better because people around him are encouraged, people around him uh, are filled with hope and filled with joy and. Like that old saying goes, more gets done with love than with a shove. And Joseph knew how to show love and honor to people, even in the world of slavery. And so he reaped all that benefit. So when he's in charge of, I get it, I, I know. <laughs> my engineer in my head's like, Bob, back to the point. So in a position where he is running Potiphar's house at any time, he could have sent a message back to his family. That's that's one of the things I think of. I think, why didn't he? He would have had interactions with people in the trades. He would have had them uh, in, the, in the marketplace. He would have had them with general couriers that go to and from Potiphar's house. He would have had it with ambassadors. He would have had all kinds of interaction. Now, I know he's, he's a servant, but he's also in charge of Potiphar's house. So, it may not have been a direct access to the ambassador, so to speak, or to the to the 
tradesman to the what do I want to say to the yeah to the whatever he might not might not have been allowed so to speak to speak to <laughs> so to speak to speak yeah you you speak a good English Bob thank you so much but he had access to people around those those people in charge and he could have easily I think sent a message to his father to say I'm alive and I'm in Egypt those that sentence alone would have changed Jacob's you know perception of life he would have changed his whole perspective of, of his circumstances he would have known that his son didn't die and even if his other brothers had had denied it, had said, well, we thought he was dead. Well, this is his coat. Like, we found his coat, and it's all bloody, and we just assumed, and whatever. It would have changed Jacob. It would have changed this whole storyline. Why didn't Why didn't Joseph reach out when he was at Potiphar's house? And then when he goes to prison, he goes to prison, and again, God's favor, blah, blah, blah. Listen to the episodes. You'll know what I'm talking about. He, he, gets, he gets to prison, He's loved by the warden. The warden, it says he cared for nothing while Joseph was there. So a simple message to a released prisoner or to a freed prisoner. Remember, a lot of times those prisoners were allowed to go out and, and earn money to pay off their debts, this, this political debtor's prison. They were, they, were not, they were not beaten into submission every day. This was a prison, a prison that was run by Potiphar, overseen by Potiphar, and it was a prison for Pharaoh's prisoners. So Joseph was, I'm not saying the prison's a great place to be, but if you had to be in a prison, this prison is the right place to be because you can, you can, uh, you're, you're not going to get beaten every day. I know, I know it still ruins the, the visual from the cartoon where he's alone in a deep cell growing an orange tree, but <laughs> you can have that version if you want. I'm not, I'm not here to destroy it. But even in all that, right, the warden loves what he does. The warden doesn't care about anything that's going on. He could have sent a message. He could have got a message out. There's a good chance that even Potiphar would have been uh, somebody that he would have seen on a regular basis while he was running the prison. I'm not saying that they spent a lot of time together, but he could have said, Potiphar, could you please, if you believe I'm innocent, could you please at least send a message to my father in Canaan that I am alive and imprisoned here in Egypt so that he knows I'm not dead. Like he doesn't even ask for a rescue or ask for a ransom or anything like that. Like just to get a message to his father to say, I'm alive and imprisoned in Egypt. This is not like, I just, I have to make sense of this. Not have to, have to is a little, a little, but I want to. And the narrative in me, the storyteller in me, I believe I do have an answer for it, but it's, it's obviously taken me, you know, 10 minutes to get there. Now, we get him out of prison. He spent seven years, right? Seven years he has spent in, uh-oh, in charge. Sorry, I, I clicked something on my computer. <laughs> those, of you, those of you who listen to me regular know that I get very nervous when, when things happen on the computer. All right. Anyways, okay, he spent seven years as viceroy during this time of plenty. Seven years. He is second in command of the of the strongest, most powerful nation in the world, and it's a it's a it's a it's a nation that's gonna just constantly get stronger. It's it's because of what he's doing, and he knows it. 
He has a plan that will bring the entire world to Egypt's doorstep and ultimately put them in a position where they are going to owe Egypt their existence. I'm I, when, when we get there, it's a couple more episodes ahead, but I will lay out what he what he did. It is it is brilliant and powerful what he did. So he's viceroy. He's in charge of, of, of the nation. He's in charge of hundreds of servants and couriers and um, dispatchers and warriors and merchants. I mean, I'm telling you, he literally could have sent anybody. He could have called for some street kid off the, off the side street and said, hey, come here. Here's, you know, here's a bucket of water and a, and a loaf of bread. Go to Canaan, find this guy, Jacob. Tell him I'm alive and in Egypt and I'm in charge. Come down, like nothing. Why, why does he not send a horse, a chariot, a camel, a boat, whatever? Why does he not communicate with his father? Why doesn't he let them let him know? And the, the only, currently, my current thought, so I know only sounds like there's only one answer, and, and I know there's not. I know there's more answers. But the answer that I that I that that I settle in, in with is the one that is alluded to when he's originally sold into slavery, that there was an agreement made that if they let him out of the out of the well, he would make a vow with his brothers to never mention what happened and never come back. That was the only way he survives. They made him they made him promise, if we let you live, you never tell anybody what happened to you. You never reach out and and contact us again. We want you to disappear. We will let you live, but we basically want to live as though you are dead. And Joseph agreed to that condition. And I don't know I don't know why other than a strong sense of honor that he made this promise, but he never reached out again. Even though I think he had ample opportunity, as far as we know, he did not even send a messenger to find out how his family was doing. He didn't send out a spy. Trust me, this guy had access, especially these last seven years, he had access to all kinds of military people. He could have sent out a recon team, he could have sent out spies. He could have said, guys, I just want to know, are they alive? How my brothers are doing? How the family's doing? Can I send uh, you know, an undercover agent posing as a merchant? Can you go sell my brothers? Whatever. Like there's all kinds of ways that this could have happened and nothing happened. That kind of thing, as a storyteller, those that, that kind of thing, those kind of layers, I, I just, I'm so curious about this. But the intensity of that vow, that covenant vow that they made to each other, it it had to be something intense. They they must have made it very clear to him that if he broke his vow, that they would do something drastic. Maybe to his little brother Benjamin, who was you know who was also you know uh, a favorite of the of the father. Not exactly sure, but. I know that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but for me, it adds a tremendous dimension to the story that he had plenty of opportunity and didn't do it. This gives us opportunity to really imagine what was going on. The brothers, I think, 
I really do believe the brothers were attempting to make their father pay for favoring Joseph. And ultimately, I think they really wanted to bring him back. I think that was really clear. Uh, I think Reuben wanted to do it in the moment. He wanted to pull, remember, he wanted to pull Joseph out of the well uh, secretly. When he got there, Joseph was already gone. And I think Judah sold them into slavery with the idea that, hey, we will we will find him and we will just buy him back. Like, we'll bring him back. But it's been too many years at this point. He's been, you know, he was sold more than once. They assumed probably he's in slavery and he probably is dead or he would have reached out. I think it's in some ways they're thinking if he was alive, surely we would have heard about it. Like, I'm sure at this point, somebody would have said something about a Canaanite who went into, you know, slavery from those, mer- from the, remember, they were they were not human uh, tradesmen. They were spice merchants, the original ones that they sold them to. Like, it was, it was a unique enough thing that somebody should have known something and they would have assumed that if he was still alive, somehow it would have leaked out and nothing is known. So they, they're probably thinking he's probably dead, and if he was alive, you know, would he really have kept the vow that long? So we are probably at least a year, maybe a couple years into the famine when we get to verse 1 here, right? When Jacob perceives, sees that there was grain in Egypt. Now, he probably didn't fully understand what it all meant when he says, uh, you know, when he sends his brothers down there, buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. He he's perceiving that that what they need to live is the grain, which on a surface level is true, but really what they need to do is reconnect to Joseph. And Joseph is going to, you know, bring tremendous uh wealth and living to the family. But but that is something we have the ability to know because we have the entire story in front of us. But in the moment, he's looking around at a crisis. His, the sons are all looking around at each other. They have no resources. They have, you know, probably protein, but they don't have any any grain for bread, for, you know, no oats, no, no corn. Uh, so they're looking for a way to survive. So he says to the sons, go. Like, why are you sitting around here looking at each other? Why are we talking to each other? Go down and buy grain in Egypt that we may live. We're not, I don't want to die. I don't want all of us to die. Like he, of course, has the promises of God to, to rely on. He has the, um, the prophetic insight that, that there is grain in Egypt. So he, you know, he's seeing, all right, God wants us to go to Egypt. Like this is the answer to the question. Is God going to, going to provide for us? Is, is the promises of God really going to be true? Are we going to become a great nation? Are, you know, will the descendants of Abraham become that number greater than the sand on the seashore. Well, we need to survive this famine. We need to find some grain in order to get through this. And he gets this perception that there's grain in Egypt and he sends his sons. Now, why did he have to send each son? Why Why did 10 of them have to go down? Because part of the deal that Joseph had set up was he would only sell grain to families. He wouldn't sell grain in bulk to a tribe or to a you know to a city this kept uh people from hoarding the grain this kept people from doing resale right this is like 
he would no one's going to hop on Amazon and sell 10, 10 pound bags of, of grain uh, delivered to your door so you don't have to go to Egypt. Like this, this was one of the threads to his master plan to bring everybody into submission to Egypt. He did it by family. Now that's, that's fascinating to me. This would also give Joe the opportunity, Joseph, I put Joe in my notes, so I just said Joe. All right, so it would also give Joseph the opportunity to get to know families from all over the world, not just the Egyptian families that he was feeding, but he would get to know all the families of the world. Everybody would send representatives, and he would get to meet them personally, and I'll tell you why. On a side note, he might have wanted... In the back of his head, he might have thought, this plan will also force my brothers to come down. Like, if if they want grain, and I'm selling it only by families, somebody from my brother's families are going to have to show up. And maybe, you know, not maybe, but I will meet them. Because this is, this is what, this is again, brilliant. So, part of Joseph's plan, he had, he had all the foreigners were channeled into one gate. Now, the Egyptians, they got their grain from, from you know, other cities, the cities that were built. And, and Joseph had records as to who got what and how much they paid and where it went and all that kind of stuff. But the foreigners, they could only come through one gate. This kept, uh, obviously, it would be a long line, but this kept the flow of grain to specific people. It kept spies and thieves from entering into multiple gates. Like, well, you all go to that one. I'll go to this one. I'll sneak in. Da, 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 da. There was only one. If you were a foreigner, you weren't getting into the country of Egypt unless you went through the main gate. All the other access points were shut down. They were guarded. So if you showed up and you were like, oh, come on. You know, I, I come to this gate all the time. I'm a merchant. This is what I do. You know me. I know you. Like, I just need to buy some grain for my family. Joseph's, Joseph's guards would not have allowed that to happen. They would have said, you need to go to the whatever gate that happened to be open. Now, the gates that were open were at these various cities that he had built for the grain to be stored, and they were they were around the borders of the country. So if when those grain silos ran out, he would change the gate to a different city. So... So that's brilliant as well. So this way here, he kept track of supplies going out. Uh, he was able to keep a record of every family and the payment that was coming in. It also kept bribes and fraud to a minimum, something that is fairly regular, regularly practiced during times of, of crisis, right? Fraud, do we have to go? <laughs> we could make a small... Uh, foray into governmental fraud, right? Create a crisis. Oh, look, we just happen to have the solution. Oh, look, and we're all stockholders in the company that has this. What are the odds of this happening? Oh, I'm just shocked and amazed. Trust us, nothing unusual happened here. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah. And I don't care what government, I don't care what government, fraud is, is, oh, ridiculous. Lies, bribes, oh, okay, so anyways, <laughs> Joseph's plan kept a lot of that from happening. 
And it was it was a weird cultural thing, I'm sure, for a lot of people in Egypt. There were probably a lot of politicians that were, quote, under Joseph, which who didn't like it. But when they saw this crisis coming, when Joseph's prediction became true, they probably were thinking, this is a way for us all to get rich. I'll be in charge. You know, Joseph put us in charge of the different cities. We will distribute the the, the grain. We will collect the, the funds for the government. And Joseph was like, mm, nope. One gate, one silo at a time. And guess who's going to be there every day? Oh, that would be me, Joseph, Viceroy. I'm going to meet everybody. I'm keeping an eye on everything. And it would have been easy for him. Or was it, you know, I'm sure they set him up in a nice little um, suite above the gate. And he could keep an eye on everything. And people ran up with records. Uh, supervisors ran up with reports. And they kept things moving along pretty nicely. And Joseph could look out and see over the gate and see all of the various people that were lining up to come get food. And it was good. Now, the brothers, again, remember, they had the livestock, but they didn't have grain. Each, each son remember, had families that they had to buy for. So each son took their own bags of silver, their own provision, and headed out. But it says Benjamin was not allowed to go. Why? Because the perception of, of Jacob was, it's my fault that Joseph died. If I hadn't sent Joseph on an errand to check in on his brothers, Joseph would still be alive. So Benjamin was not going to be allowed to go. He was favored by Jacob. He was protected by Jacob. There was there was no way that this thing was that this guy was going to be risked. Risked. There was no. Jacob was not taking the risk of losing Benjamin after he lost uh, Joseph. Remember, those are the only two sons born of his quote favorite wife, uh, Rachel. Right? Was it Rachel? Rebecca. Leah was the second favorite wife, and uh, Rachel was the other. Okay, good. So uh, the brothers, the brothers' added toward, attitude toward Benjamin was they never hated him. They were never jealous of Benjamin. They were they were jealous of Joseph. I think because he was the firstborn. He was treated as the firstborn. Remember, Reuben had lost. His position as the firstborn, when he when he overstepped his his uh, role as a firstborn son and tried to force his father to sleep with the with his mother Leah, and that whole situation never got resolved. And Judah lost his favor in the with the brothers when his plan to make dad sad for a little while didn't work out because they couldn't find Joseph. And Judah lost favor. Remember, we went through, there was a whole episode of Judah's like 20 plus years out of out of favor with the family where he uh he got in a bit of trouble on a on a little trip to the shearing party. All right, that's a <laughs> little bit of trouble. Little bit of trouble. Little little rape went on there. But that's okay. No, it's not okay. Uh it was interesting. It's an interesting story. If you missed that episode, go on back and find it. It's pretty pretty crazy. That one on Jacob, uh, on Joseph, uh, Judah. Sorry. So everybody lost their their role, and Benjamin they they kind of they were kind of like you know what he's favored. Uh, our plan, our last plan, really went down, and they saw the constant pain that Jacob was going through. Constant pain. 
And the, the pain that Jacob was going through led to a constant weight on the brothers about the deception that they had and the vow that they were keeping to not mention it to anybody and never say it, say a word to anybody. They never talked about it, ever. That was part of the plan. And at some level, I'm sure they're still shocked that they still haven't heard or anything about Joseph, where he is, or if or anything about him. They, they're not sure what's going on. But there was this constant negative emotional impact on what they did and their vow of silence, and it impacted them. It impacted their father. It impacted the family. Like there's, there had to be, I'm, I'm not saying they never laughed or had a good time, but there had to be periodically this, this underlying current would get touched where Somebody might say, you know, you you guys love each other so much. Your brothers are so close. You guys, you know, work together. Your family is so large. You're impacting the culture. It must be great to be so close and love each other so much. And the brothers are thinking, uh uh-huh, if you only knew, right? And it's odd. When you have one of those deep-seated secrets, it's odd how big it becomes in in you. Even though you, you... may never talk about it. You think other people hear hear things or see things. You don't you don't necessarily say anything or do anything, but you assume somebody might know something. Like they you you can picture them just out and about with some market guy and saying something like, "Yeah, can you imagine killing somebody and bur- you know, you could bury them in a well and nobody would know." And you you know, they're looking the brothers are looking at each other like, "Wait, what what do you know?" What do you mean, what do I know? I was just saying that you could you could throw somebody in a well out here. They'd be dead in three days. Who would know? Oh, yeah, that's probably true. Have you ever done that? No. Well, you, you ever hear of anybody doing that? No. Why are you asking me? I just, I'm just, I just mentioned it. Like, I'm not trying to. Why, did you guys do it? No, no, we've never done that. No. But, you know, we didn't want to do business with somebody who has done that. No, 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 everything's cool, everything's cool. But the brothers walk walk away going, oh, man, like, I, I cannot believe I still feel this way. Like, I feel worse now than I did the day we did it. Because when you don't deal with, with this kind of uh, offense, that <laughs> almost puts it in a small sense, right? We're talking major, tragic offense. You don't deal with it. It never goes away, and it doesn't get smaller, right? It'll wear you down. It'll wear you out. It'll burden you to a point where you can barely breathe. And I think deep down they thought, we really didn't hate Joseph. We just wanted to be loved by Dad. And that honestly, that's sad. And that's on, that's on Jacob. And I've mentioned him before, and I've even done a series of TikToks on bad fathers in the Bible you know, just one minute like deals. And Jacob's one of those, man. The favorite favor that he poured out on Joseph in the name of I loved your mother type of thing, he ruined these kids' lives. And they know that deep inside. This was not Joseph's fault. It wasn't like Joseph went around and tried to earn his father's favor. The father just poured it out on Joseph. Was Joseph intelligent? Yes. Was he handsome? Yes. Did he, did he you know, perform well under pressure? Yes. And when they think about Joseph, 
they probably think he's actually he probably should have been in charge of the family. Like he's he's legitimately a leader. And we probably like we don't really hate him. We just want to be loved by dad. They were just frustrated by Joseph's favor, and they they blamed Joseph, quote, their circumstances for their negative emotions toward their father. They blamed Joseph for the fact that their father didn't love them. If Joseph was gone, we'd be good. Dad would love us because the competition would be gone. They they probably tried to do something like, like uh, Cain and Abel, right, where Cain's looking around going, fine, you know, <laughs> if God likes your sacrifice more than my sacrifice, then I'll just get rid of you, and then I'll be fine. God won't have anybody, anybody else to worry about. I'll be, I'll be favored, right? Didn't work out that way. It never does. It never does because circumstances do not, do not impact your your heart. The way you respond to circumstances are not the circumstances response uh, responsibility ever. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, you're there, you know, you're not responsible for the other person's response. Like you, if you need to tell somebody what you need to tell them and you tell them, it's up to them on how they're going to respond. You're not responsible for that. There's a lot of times people are like, oh, I could never tell my husband that. I could never tell my wife that. I could never, I could never, I could never. And it's like, like it's eating you up inside. It's destroying the relationship. But they would never forgive me. Well, what's going on right now? What's going on right now isn't healthy. What's going on right now isn't isn't beneficial to anyone. And I have no doubt that's what's going on in, in the family right now. And Jacob, Jacob's perception of what's going on is uh, hindered by his own grief, right? If Jacob perceived that there was grain in Egypt, if he had insight to that, then he probably had insight to the fact that Jacob that Joseph was alive, but he just didn't believe it because he was in such pain that he, he probably believed that what he was hearing wasn't true. It was his heart talking, not God talking. And there's lots of people who do that because they wallow in their grief. They wallow in their self-rejection, their self-pain, their disappointment, and they miss what God's trying to tell them, which is the goodness of God. So they believed if Joseph was gone, they would be good. Dad would love them. And then when dad was like finally fixed... They could just go get Joseph and bring him back and everybody would be happy and Joseph would fall in line because Joseph would know if I screw things up again, they'll kill me. They really thought that this plan was going to work and trust me, so many people do. They really think if I can manipulate my my circumstances, if I can get mom and dad to do this, if I can get my boss to do this, if I can, if I can eliminate this person completely, then eventually maybe we can bring them back, whatever. Everything will be fine. If I'm if I'm in control of everything, everything will be fine. That's 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 usually the approach, right? And it doesn't work. It never does. Well, Jacob never forgave himself for sending Joseph on that on that journey, and the brothers never forgave themselves for causing such pain to Jacob, and Benjamin lived as a favored son, but he also lived in the shadow of Joseph's life. It was one of those classic things where it was like, hey, can I go see, you know, how the how the 
herds are doing, how the sheep are doing, how the brothers are doing. Can I go to the town? Can I go to the shearing comp- uh, party? Can I go to the... And the answer was always no, 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 no. It reminds me somewhat of like some of the fables or some of the fairy tales where, you know, you got a prince or a princess that's confined to the ca- to the castle because some other son died, some other daughter died, and it's like you... Or, or you know, or there was a curse put on it. Whatever, it's a fairy tale. But like you, we're, we're gonna we're gonna make sure nothing bad happens to you because we're gonna protect you, and you're never gonna leave. And that's, I believe, was what Benjamin was living through. But the brothers never processed or ever really talked about what had happened. And I would imagine that when they looked at this long trip to Egypt, where they would be just them, and they looked at this long trip to Egypt where they'd be on a dusty road with not a lot of merchants because nobody was nobody had any anything to trade. And their father wouldn't be around and Benjamin wouldn't be around. Maybe they maybe some of them were hopeful that hey, we can finally have some hard conversations about what we did. We can finally have some hard conversations about what might have happened to Joseph and what's happened to the family since we did that. And maybe we could talk about where you know Judah is and why he had to disappear for whatever the last twenty years. It's it's a fascinating idea that these guys were putting together as they pulled together their supplies and their money, and they you know got their whatever their carts and their oxen and their donkeys, and they were preparing for this trip. They were probably thinking, you know, it's been a long time since all of us have been out out alone. We probably, this is probably going to be good. And they probably had some hope because Egypt did have grain and they did have money and they were going to go down and get some food and bring it back. And the wives are probably thinking, this is great. This means we can feed our children and the children were happy because they'd have food and they could feed the the horses and the and the donkeys and the, and every, you know, things, things were looking up. They were probably looking forward to this trip. Oh, but there was uh, there was uh, there was some interesting things coming their way. You know what? We're gonna end right there, and we're gonna go on to uh, the next episode. That'll be number fifty-eight. We're gonna do the next episode of the Epic Narrative Narrative next week. Thanks so much for hanging out. I'll see you again soon. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob thoughts. Well, welcome back to the Epic Narrative Bob Thoughts edition. At the end of every episode, I do enjoy doing these things uh, at the end. And sometimes they remind me of greater conversations I'd want to have. And I actually have a page on Facebook called Bob Thoughts. And uh, I don't, I definitely don't repeat a lot of the things that I say here on the Epic Narrative uh, at the end of each episode, even though it's titled the same. But on this particular case, I might because I want to go into a little bit more about how to respond uh, to your circumstances and, and where most people respond out of. Because we all have a choice. When We all have a choice. Every circumstance is an opportunity. Every, every, every circumstance is an opportunity to promote yourself to become more like Christ and to become more like what God has designed you to be, which is his representative here on earth. You cannot look at a circumstance and respond in a negative sense 
and then blame the circumstance for that response. You can't do it. And you can't blame somebody else. You can't say, well, they it, definitely you can't, you can't blame something like offense because you literally can live unoffendable. Uh, you can make the choice to never be offended. And any time that, that it stirs up within you, you, start, you, you just start asking yourself a question. Well, what's, what's going on here? What, why are you tempted to be offended right now? What is it about the circumstance, whether it be by words or by behavior or by personality or by you know programming within the within a, a structure structure environment or or um, the the environment in which you work, whatever you you say, okay, what what is it about this that that I'm offended by or that I want to be offended by, and then you. You get to do the work to turn yourself into a person who isn't offended by those things because you say, all right, this is what it's about. I want to be offended because I think I deserve or I think I need or I want to be whatever. And you get to, uh, yeah, you get to remove that out of your system. You get to pull that weed out and say, Ah, I don't, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be offended. It also, by choosing not to be offended by your circumstances, you also get the opportunity then to communicate within those circumstances in a, in a way that allows for maximum relational connection. And sometimes, uh, it, it'll blow the other person away because sometimes the other person knows that they're being ir- irritating or they know that the circumstances are ones that you're not going to like, but they don't care. And they genuinely are hoping that you get offended. And then when you don't, they don't know what to do. And it actually, it's, it's a very powerful move because it, it is, it's motivated by love and love is the most powerful force in the universe. So you can make that choice uh, regarding your circumstances, it's one of the ways that you can promote yourself in all circumstances to become an even better person rather than being controlled, a victim. And, and I'll talk about oh, victimization. We will talk about that a lot when it comes to next season in the book of Exodus because the, the slave mentality, the victim mentality was the toughest journey for the nation of Israel. It was not getting out of Egypt. Getting out of Egypt was fine, but getting Egypt out of them, well, that's a long trip. But honestly, so many of us have slave mentalities that that maybe not against, maybe not regarding all of our lives or all of the things going on in our life, but we have a, a slave mentality when, when it comes to a lot of things in our lives. And you'll find, I found even in, in studying for the book of Exodus, and now I've started to record it, I find, man, there is a lot of stuff that's just super easy to be still in that slave slash victim mentality. You want to blame the other person. You want to look at your spouse. You want to look at your siblings. You want to look at your kids. You want to look at what, uh, you know, your boss. You want to look at a customer. You want to say, it is their fault. If they hadn't, then I wouldn't have. It's like, no, you still chose to do that. You chose you chose to be offended. You chose to be hurt. It's uh, it's also why I really encourage people to do the hard work of actually not just learning about yourself, but also um, walking out the hurt 
and, and, and processing, learning to process life differently so that you're not hurt anymore. Like I just said, not being offended anymore. You can, you can process things to that point. It takes time and you do have to do work because it's, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, process because you're literally learning to live life differently because you're changing your belief system. Uh, and, and man, it'll, it'll revolutionize your world. But it's still, you know, it's still work. And I encourage people to do that work. And there's lots of ways to do that work. And there's, you can buy, you know, pay for, for professional help. You can read about it. You can, you know, find different ways to encourage your, your heart. But so many people want to do the work of getting to know themselves so that they can then project that on other people and be like, well, I can't help it because I'm this way. Or I, you know what? My therapist told me that this is the way I am. It's just the way I am. And I would say, you know what? It's good to know that about yourself, but that doesn't mean that's where you stay. Currently, there's, there's especially in the, in the church, the Enneagrams have been a big fad for about four or five years. <clears throat> and it's, it's fine. Like, it's fine. Enneagrams are fine. They've been around for a couple hundred years. They... They come from all kinds of weird places, and I'm not saying that they're Christian or not Christian. It's just, it's just an on-ramp to try and get to know yourself. But way too many people take something like the Enneagram or, uh, you know, uh, for a while in my life, it was the Myers-Briggs test, uh, then it was the Strength Finders test, and then it was the DISC test. It doesn't matter to me. It's, it's an on-ramp to get to know yourself, but way too many people get to know themselves, and then they're just like, well, this is who I am. These are my numbers. These are my letters. These are, you know, my top five uh, uh, characteristics. And, and they don't look to change any of them. And they just basically say, now deal with it. Like they project it off. They either use it as a sword to beat people up or they use it as a shield to protect themselves from, from people that they don't like. And I, I mean, people get so hung up on these sort of things. They become such a slave to them that I've seen them literally break up relationships. Some even have broken up their marriages because they say, well, we're just not compatible. I took all the tests. I read all the books. And now I've realized I should have married a number, whatever, with a, with a wing of this and a triangle of that. Or I should have married somebody with these characters. I should have married somebody with these letters. It, it's, again, it, to me, it goes back to the slave mentality. I am a victim of my circumstances, rather than coming from a place of identity where you say, this is, this is who God made me to be. I am somebody who is unaffected by my circumstances. I am somebody who is unoffended by anything that happens around me. I am somebody who has, has moved out of hurt and into healing, not just for myself, but for others. All right, look at that. I've already gone like, what is this, 20 minutes long? Relax, Bob. You're just supposed to cover things for a little bit on the end of an episode. So anyways, I hope I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I look forward to having more conversations. And uh, and yeah, I started recording Exodus. It's going to be, a, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I, I really think you're going to be blown away uh, by the epic narratives uh, perspective on the laws of God. Anyways, have yourself a good day, everyone. Hey, 
everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys. Bye.